I will destroy everything you love about me. Hey, and welcome to Meet Your Heroes. I'm Elliot. And I'm Audrey. And this is the show where we ignore the very good conventional wisdom to never meet your heroes. And instead, get to know who they really were. That's exactly what we do. It feels good to be back. It does. We are so close to Christmas. We are, which, um, you know, now might not be the time in front of the thousands of people who listen to us to mention that I have not got you anything for Christmas yet. No. (laughs) Wait, that's not true. That's not true. I have at least... I said, could you get me this one thing? Right. I mean, we're at that, like, very romantic stage in our marriage where it was like, please don't buy me anything. And if you do, please have it be only this very specific thing for which I'm sending you the exact link in this color, (laughs) this size, nothing else. Yeah. Please don't waste your money trying to impress me. I'm not going to be impressed. (laughs) That's, that you know, one of my love languages is gifts, not giving (laughs) or not receiving, giving. And I'm always impressed. Right, but I have done nothing this year. You know what? I feel like everybody gets a gimme. Everybody gets a mulligan. This year? If ever there was a year to say, fuck putting an effort into anything. Yes, (laughs) this is the year. Absolutely the year. This is the year. Any chance you have anything else on your Christmas list you just (laughs) let me know about now? Yes. Yes, there is. I would love more than anything else to know who this week's hero is. Oh, okay. Well, um, our listeners already know because they've clicked on this week's episode, but you have been in the dark. Yes. Thank you, RSS. My gift to you this week is approximately an hour's worth of shit talking. The voice himself, Mr. Frank Sinatra. Nice. And himself responsible for several famous Christmas carols. Right? I'm sure. Yes. I didn't do a ton of research into his career because it falls into a couple categories. Okay. Uh, Grammys and Oscars. Okay. But who cares? Yeah. I I care about the behind the scenes stuff, which is what we're going to talk about this week. We're going to skip the hits. We're going to play the B-sides. He has like 1,500 recorded songs. Yikes, 1,500. He was in dozens of movies. He won Oscars and Grammys and... um, No Emmys, though. No EGOT for him. (laughs) No EGOT for him. Emmys didn't exist at this point, I'm assuming. I literally did no research into his career because to me, that feels like the thing everybody knows about. Yeah. John Legend's like, suck it. You you don't have anything on me. Right. Exactly. John Legend with his EGOT, he can have it all. But Frank Sinatra? No, no, no. What do you know about Frank Sinatra? What do I know about Frank Sinatra? So he is the Rat Pack guy. Mm-hmm. The leader of the Rat Pack. He is... I did it my way. Mm-hmm. He is New York state of mind. Like I'm, I just think of these very timeless classics that he recorded. Outside of that, like it's mostly image. I don't know a lot of details about his life. Right, right. I think that's how most people think about Frank Sinatra. They think about him as the artist and not the person. Fair. Okay. Did you know that he was born on December twelfth, nineteen fifteen? 
No, I didn't. Why would that be relevant? Where? <laughs> what can we do with that information? Well, according to Audrey's Astrology Corner, a December 12th Sagittarius is competitive in all aspects of life. No matter how much they are able to accomplish, these obsessive perfectionists inevitably feel bad about the opportunities that got away. They need to accumulate the tangible emblems of success to feel that they have, quote, made it. Often, this attitude of accountability helps them blaze their trail. So that's why it's relevant. Because it's written in the stars. Ruthlessly competitive. Let's see if it holds up. The the obsessive perfectionist, I'll just go ahead and spoiler alert that, that is accurate. Oh, okay. It's why he has 1,500 hits. Yes, or yes. 1,500 recorded songs. You don't get to 1,500 hits without being a little bit type A. I mean, I don't think they're all hits. They're 1,500 re- recorded songs. Sure. So let's go back to 1915, the year he's born. 1915? 1915. It's crazy. Yes. I mean, it makes sense. It just seems early for somebody who seems like a 20th century star. But I guess it makes sense, yeah. Well, yeah, it's not like he was peaking at 1915. <laughs> yes. He was being birthed at 19, in 1915. In fact, all 13.5 pounds of him were being birthed in 1915. 13.5 pounds? Yes. So if you know Frank Sinatra in any sort of detail, if you look at his face, he has a few scars. Those scars are from the forceps that were required to pull his head and body from his mother's nethers. Her, his mother's birth canal. Yes. <laughs> Holy shit. 13 so he's pounds. A big baby. Yeah. Uh, for a point of reference, average baby is like seven pounds? Yes. Like seven and a half pounds is the average size of a baby. He's like two Double babies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's thick. he's a thick baby born the son of italian immigrants and his parents were really interesting individuals so to set the stage a bit for frank's interest in performance it's important to know who his parents were so his mother was a domineering but influential member of the community eventually she becomes a politician But throughout his childhood, she's a midwife. And despite being a devout Catholic, she was also one of the only women in Hoboken, where they lived, who performed illegal abortions. Interesting. So her nickname was actually Hatpin Dolly. Hatpin Dolly? Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, shit. Yeah, she has her own Wikipedia page. She is a character. She's a visionary. She was a leader in the community. She's the Catholic midwife secret abortion provider. Yes. In fact, there were a number of churches that uh, Frank, in his childhood, Francis, was not allowed to perform at because his mother was performing abortions. She was just like a known abortionist. Oh, shit. Mm-hmm. But anyway, she's very well connected. She is bold and uh, an assuming character. Yeah, okay. Unlike Dolly, Frank's father was not really the, like, achievement-oriented sort. Oh. He was present and invested in Frank's life. He was successful in his own right. He was also an illiterate boxer who eventually 
opened a tavern during Prohibition. Solid working class people. Mm hmm. Uh, but not much. Wait, during Prohibition? Yes. Okay, so he's he's like solid working class people who are like depending on a criminal enterprise for their living. Indeed. Okay, okay, yes. got it, got it. Yes. <laughs> As is his mother, let's be clear. The abortions are illegal at this point. Absolutely. So they're, mm-hmm. they're both breaking the law. They're both in service to a higher good. Yes. They are just servicing the people in their community who have very specific needs and wants. Yes. They're well enough politically connected that they don't get in trouble. Yeah. Because all the important people want the things that they're providing. Mm-hmm. And Frank, as a young child, sort of gets in with this crowd. He's like, oh, the rules don't apply to you mm-hmm. as long as you are, as long as you know the right people, basically. Right. He was performing at the tavern. He was singing. People Wait, he's perfor- how old is he performing at the tavern? Eight, nine, ten. Like, he's just like a gregarious child. He's scrawny. People uh-huh. describe him as Wait, being... he was like, a 13 and a half pound baby. Yeah, I know. But then they describe him as being, like, uh, excessively thin as a child. <laughs> but... His parents nurtured his interests. He was always interested in performing, especially musically. He had a natural talent. His voice was always fairly strong. It got better with practice. But even as a young child, he was in it to win it. Yeah, that's that's what happens. You start out um, thick out the chute, but right. then you're just thin as a chute after and then, that. Yeah. Bing, bang, boom. You're Christina Aguilera. You have the pipes. You just go for it from no. age nine on. Hold on, no. So, Christina Aguilera stayed thick throughout the singing career. No, she did not. What? No. She is fortunately thick now. Okay. Back and forth, back and forth. Yeah. Platinum level, premium, fantastic. Could not get enough, Christina Aguilera. I'm just saying. The issue with Frank Sinatra is that he was not as thick as Christina Aguilera is now. He was as thick as Christina Aguilera was in her earlier days. I'm a little bit confused by this right now because basically what I'm saying is Christina Aguilera is hot. Okay. And Frank Sinatra was was not a scrawny child who (laughs) was like trafficking booze as a nine year old. How many Christina (laughs) Aguilera's would you say that Frank Sinatra was at this age? (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. I'm just saying Christina Aguilera was a child star who had exceptional music ability from musical ability from the get-go and frank sinatra was okay yeah and you know what here's what i know i know that christina aguilera looks chef's kiss in a pair of leather chaps i don't know what frank sinatra looks like in a pair of leather chaps he didn't make that music video no he did not Mm -mm. so back to frank it's his late teens early 20s he gets involved in singing with a quartet so back then, the sort of structure of musicians was as a group or as the leader or the the singer in that like fronts a band, right? There's a jazz band or a blues band or like a big band behind you. Sure. He gets involved in a quartet. They do very well. They win a few awards. They travel for about a year. And all the other band members are like... Hey, I'm 20. It's time for me to find a wife and settle down. And Frank was like, I don't want to do that. I would like to be a professional musician. So he leaves his quartet. The quartet disbands. They all go on to literally just like go find wives. 
They just settle down, mm-hmm. leave the music life behind them. Yeah, they're like Jersey's where it's at. We're we're here. <laughs> leave the vagabond life behind <laughs> for the glorious pastures of New Jersey. Mm-hmm. When he's like 24, Frank actually does marry his first wife, Nancy. They have three children, but Frank at the same time is getting involved with these bands. He's um, with this sort of well-known group the James Sinatra band, and then he... Wait, any relation? No, he is the Sinatra in the... Like, the James is the band, Sinatra's the singer. And it's, like, the James Sinatra band. Oh, like, hyphenated, like, two last names. Yes, 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 yes. Okay, okay, got it, got it. He does well enough there that he sort of starts to, like, move up the ranks, where other bands that are more famous are recruiting him to be the lead singer of their group. Oh, because they want the famous singer for their band. Yes. Got it. The sort of like peak band that he performs with is, it's like the Dorsey Sinatra band. Yeah. You know. Dorsey, big, big band. Big band. Music leader. Right. But Frank, in his mid-20s, his fame is rising really quickly, comparatively. Like most singers who like front a big band are just part of the big band. But Frank is, like, charismatic. His voice is always silky smooth. He has this, like, masterful control over his voice. And people really latch on to him as Frank Sinatra. So, hold on. You're saying Frank Sinatra mm-hmm. is a good singer. He's a good singer. And he's a good enough singer to get noticed for being a good singer. Right. By 1942, he's pretty famous. And he decides he's going to break out on his own. He's going to be Frank Sinatra, the singer. No band. No band? No band. What? No music? Anonymous music. Anon- okay, so just nobody music. Doesn't even need to give the band any credit. Just, just Frank the band. Sinatra. He's the guy. You show up. Any band could get his sheet music, play it behind him. He doesn't give a shit. None of them matter. It's just Frank Sinatra. He's the one you came to see. Mm-hmm. This is very controversial at the time because most people don't do this, and it's incredibly risky. Most bands are pissed. Most bands are pissed, yeah. <laughs> they need a front. But by this point, the reason that Frank believes he'll be successful is because his brand has tapped into a market that did not exist before this moment in time. Any guesses about this market? Um, radio? No. That's that's all my guesses. Okay. Teenage girls. Uh, got it, got it, got it. Okay, so it's 1940s, early 1940s. Up until this point, most music has been made with the adult audience in mind. Yeah, just people sitting around at home mm-hmm. listening to some music or maybe going to the club. Right. But now we're post-depression. We're in a war. There is a need for entertainment. They're competing with movie theaters yeah, pop music now. Yes, and movie theaters are primarily catering to young adults and teenagers. Mm. And so there is suddenly this musical market that big producers are realizing, if we can get someone out in front of this, we can get the Bobby Soxer audience. Sorry, come again? The Bobby Soxer? Have you never heard the term Bobby Sox or I've Bobby Soxer? I've never heard the term Bobby Soxer. Okay, so bobby socks, just so you know, are delicate socks that have typically lace on the top of them, and you scrunch them down. It was just like a fashion style. Wait, is this related at all to sock hops? I, eh, maybe. 
Maybe. Uh, maybe. I'm just going to say it. No research at all. Mm-hmm. This is where sock hops come from. Sure. Bobby socks were super popular. People wanted to wear their socks to dances. Sock hop was a dance where you got to wear your socks at the dance. Okay. This is this is how history happened, people. Okay. Yes. That right there is the definitive timeline <laughs> that we are the experts and fully credible, totally, absolutely believe everything we say. Okay. Bobby Soxers are teenage girls. Frank Sinatra is essentially the first pop star. So much so that it is described as like Sinatra hysteria. There is an article by a person named Bruce Bliven or Bliven. I'm sure he's listening. Don't want <laughs> you to be offended right now. In the New Republic. He's the editor of this this article in the New Republic. And this is what he has to say at the time. He called it, quote, a phenomenon of mass hysteria that is only seen two or three times in a century. You need to go back not merely to Charles Lindbergh's first flight and Valentino to understand it, but to the dance madness that overtook some German villages in the Middle Ages or to the Children's Crusade. What was new was the power that one singer held heralded by mass screaming in the advent of the teenager as a social ideal. Sinatra was the first modern pop star. Move over Justin Bieber. Mm-hmm. Move over NSYNC. Mm-hmm. Move over the Beatles, Elvis. All y'all, get off that bullshit. This guy's a real deal. He's a real deal. He paved the way. Not since the Pied Piper has anybody moved mm-hmm. prepubescent girls the way mm-hmm. he has. You are exactly right. Frank Sinatra walked so Justin Bieber could run. <laughs> <laughs> to give a little glimpse of like what this, quote, hysteria was like, in 1943, he did a show in a theater that held about 250 patrons. Outside of the theater, mm-hmm. any guess about how many Bobby Soxers flooded Times Square and caused a riot? It, so 250 people actually had tickets and got in? Mm-hmm. Like a thousand? Thirty thousand. Oh shit. <laughs> it's like a stadium of people. A stadium of people came to fit in like a, a you know, modern a day Catholic church. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? So it's known as the Columbus Day Riot. Oh it's, shit. They see yeah, a it's like a named real thing. hmm So it's not a real riot. Nobody got hurt. But it was a riot in in so much as thirty thousand teenage girls. Yes showed up to hear this one man who up until just like a year or two before was just the leader of a big band. Yeah. But mm-hmm. he became his own thing, went out on his own and pulled it off. It's around this time that folks take notice of him. Not not teenage girls so much as the US government. Okay. And they're like, hey, you should have been drafted by now. Um, why are you not in the army? Oh, that's true. Good point. Good point. <laughs> So he goes, he reports, they do his physical, he is declared unfit for service. Interesting. The reason officially to the public is because he has a perforated- His eyes that are too pretty. That's what it was. That's it. He's just, you're too pretty to die in a war. <laughs> there we go. That's always been the reason I didn't join the military, by the mm-hmm. way. Thank you to everyone who's serving, by the way. <laughs> Yeah, we're just shitting all over the service there. No, yes. we're not shitting on the service. We've talked about a bunch of draft dodgers, That's and true. Frank Sinatra is one of them. So the big reason publicly is because he has this perforated eardrum that's the result of having his head fucking pulled out of his mother's 
vaginal canal with forceps. Wait, oh shit, it perforated his eardrum? Yes. Wait, can he hear? Not out of one ear. Wait, he can only hear out of one ear? Mm-hmm. Oh, so, okay, so secretly, this is his advantage. He's constantly pulling the Mariah Carey finger in the ear, mm-hmm. and nobody knows it. Nobody knows it. Behind the scenes, there is a notation in his file that he was psychologically unfit for service. Mm. Third story that that sort of surfaces around why a young, fit man in his mid-20s wouldn't serve in the war. These rumors start to swirl that Sinatra bribed the army with $40,000 to avoid the service. And this is what prompts the original FBI file to be opened on Frank Sinatra. Eventually, they concluded he did not bribe anyone. It really was the eardrum. It was really was the psychological unfitness. Oh, shit. Okay, so it really was that. This file that gets opened on Frank in the mid-1940s never really gets closed. So I am curious about this file. Mm-hmm. I just don't want to skip over the fact that you can show up mm-hmm. at a meeting. You've been drafted into the army in the middle of a war. Mm-hmm. And somebody writes down... This person is psychologically unfit to wield a gun against our enemies. Mm-hmm. Like, that's... so. Do we have any more details about, like, what it takes to get declared as being psychologically unfit? I... I no. I, I didn't do a lot of research into that, but I, I... In, like, modern times, it's anything from, you know, episodes of um, bipolar disorder or depression. That can get you. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I mean... I, I don't know the actual criteria, so I, I can't speak to this personally. But whatever they are, mm-hmm. they applied to Frank Sinatra. According to my sources. Okay. Which are a lot of reputable Internet online. websites. Yeah. <laughs> Internet <laughs> websites. Including like history.com, Britannica.com. We, we went to official websites on the official internet and they said these things. Speaking of official websites on the official internet. If you want to know more about the FBI files on Frank Sinatra, you can go to vault.fbi.gov and you can find the 30-part files, each of which contain 30 or more pages, a combined total of 2,500 FBI pages. Wait, what? On Frank Sinatra that span five decades of surveillance. Oh, so this was just the beginning of the FBI surveillance of this guy. Mm-hmm. They opened those original files on Frank in the early 1940s. Did he bribe the army? Blah, blah, blah. Eventually, they're like, no. The case to continue following Frank is not helped by the fact that in 1947, he is photographed in Cuba at a mob celebration for Lucky Luciano's release from jail. In 1947, were the sanctions on Cuba in place? Could you just go to Cuba? Oh, I actually don't know that. But what I'll tell you is, it's a sort of place that um, mob bosses celebrate their release from jail. (laughs) Yes, that's (laughs) demonstrably accurate here. Yeah, and -hmm. he was there. He was there. There are these, these pictures of him with his arm around Luciano on a hotel balcony at a Havana nightclub and, you know, there with a bunch of 
known mafia folks, um, a lot of female sex workers. As he's leaving this party, he's photographed with the Fischetti, is how I'm going to pronounce it. Tell me if I'm wrong, listeners. The Fischetti brothers at the airport. So these are, this is another um, known crime family. Crime family. And he is getting off the plane with his own briefcase in hand. And this is like very controversial because he is Frank Sinatra. Like, why is he carrying his own bag? It's never proven. So this is just uh, repeating. This is me regurgitating wild speculation, rumors, that he was moving money for the mob. That he was just walking around with between $1 and $2 million in a suitcase because he could. Yeah, he'd get away with it. He could. Rumors of him being involved in organized crime start around this time, but they plague him his whole life. Wait, rumors or photographic evidence of him so here's the thing (laughs) he is we're gonna talk more about this in just a bit especially like in the next decade and all of the business dealings he gets involved in but his whole life he is just photographed hanging out with a bunch of mob bosses he rents out a whole floor of a hotel and uh at one point has a throws a party like multi-day party where different mafia mob I don't know what the right word is for families of organized crime. The families. The families show up, different ones on different days, and he just, like, blows all his money, showering them with these parties and hanging out with them. Not secretly. The FBI knows it. He knows the FBI knows it. He's just throwing parties, though. Not a crime. parties. Not a crime. You can hang out with whoever you want. Not a crime. It's, like, 1945, 46, 47 professionally he's on the top of the charts world war ii is ending mm-hmm. all these bobby soxers cannot get enough but around like 1948 okay so what does that make him that makes him 33 his popularity starts to wane couple things working against him the mob association broadly the whole not going to war thing doesn't go well when all of the men who were in the war come back and they're like hey fuck you buddy yeah my 19 year old wife is obsessed with you and that's a problem i was just risking my life and you're over here like with organized crime he's described as quote a draft dodging communist sympathizer in the media harsh but true folks don't love that and also his music is not evolving very quickly so he's a very specific style very big band when asked about this time in his professional life, he mentions like, yeah, the reason I wasn't popular is because my music wasn't the style at the time. There's also this thing that's happening where the FBI is starting to directly antagonize him. The FBI conspires with a number of gossip columnists and journalists who are sort of like in the know with the celebrity crowd, the Hollywood crowd, trying to dig up dirt. The FBI is still trying to dig up dirt in their own very special way, but they're working together. They find a bunch of these sort of salacious but not really meaningful stories, both of them like working together. They publish them. Wait, are you saying J. Edgar Hoover's FBI is playing dirty tricks here? Dirty tricks. The FBI of the United States of America Mm -hmm. being less than forthcoming? They find all this unrelated dirt. They share it with the journalists. The journalists find all this like unrelated gossip. He's fucking around on his wife but they still start publishing it 
Okay. Just to antagonize Frank to see if they can sort of pull out of him what's really happening behind the scenes, which is him being involved in organized crime. Yeah, they want some evidence. They don't have it. They're going to, like, do what they can to fuck with him. Right. But instead of anything meaningful coming from that, two things happen. First, Frank FOIAs all his FBI files. <laughs> Wait, can you do that? <laughs> yeah. You can FOIA your own FBI files. There you go. It's a Freedom of Information Act loophole. He gets all of them of what they have at the time. It's not that much compared to how many they will have later in his life. Sure. And also, Frank starts getting involved in personal disputes, fights, arguments with journalists. At one point, he punches a gossip columnist. He, like, goes full Kanye on these gossip columnists. It's a whole big thing. Lawsuit, payout, judgment. Lawsuit from the punching, payout from the punching. Mm -hmm. Got it. All those things. This is not the first or last journalist that he would physically or verbally attack. <laughs> okay, okay. But just so you know, sort of setting the stage, late 1940s, his professional career is coming to an end and his personal political mm-hmm. uh, connections are unraveling. At the same time, his marriage to his first wife, Nancy, is falling apart. Frank is having numerous affairs. okay. One name in this, like, cadre of women that you might recognize, Lana Turner. Does that Lana, sound familiar? Lana Turner? Mm-hmm. Is that a character from Archer? No. Remember, I think it was the Hitchcock episode? Oh, yes. Was it Hitchcock? No, 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 no. It was um, Sean Connery. Sean Connery. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So Lana Turner from the Sean Connery episode... Was the girlfriend of a gangster. Yes. Who, yes. Yeah, and there Full was this circle. whole incident where she mm-hmm. was cheating on the gangster with Sean, Sean Connery. Connery. And the gangster flew over from UK, mm-hmm. or from America to the UK to, like, start this fight. Right. But one of the people... Before the fight, before then, Frank Sinatra is betting Lana Turner. Interesting. He's had a whole bunch of affairs. By the way, Lana mm-hmm. is still a character from Archer. Is she? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But not Lana Turner. Not Lana Turner. Anyway, keep going. Mm -hmm. So he's had a whole bunch of affairs, but it isn't until Lana that he realizes maybe he should not be married to Nancy. Interesting. And within two weeks of sleeping with Lana, he tells Nancy that the marriage is over. That's what does it for him. That's what does it. It takes a while for them to get divorced, but that was the impetus for it. He leaves Nancy at home with two toddlers and a newborn. Okay. To go sleep with Lana. This does not last very long. But within a few weeks, Frank is with Ava Gardner. Do you know Ava Gardner at all? Not really. Okay, she's like a Hollywood bombshell. I mean, she is gorgeous. You, if you Google this woman, I feel like you should actually take a moment right now to just Google her. Okay, yes. So so now Googling her, I can confirm objectively she's smoking hot yes smoking hot yes in general you and i have very different tastes in women but in the very overlap it's the same yeah and and it's a smoke show of ava gardner the broody brunette anyway so he leaves his first wife for lana turner lana turner doesn't work out he leaves lana for ava this all happens very rapidly meanwhile his career is on this downward slope at one point during this whole period 
he loses his voice for nearly an entire month because before that he was singing upwards of 100 songs a day on the radio and during live performances, just trying to like revive his career. Yeah. Does not go well. He sings 100 songs a day, doesn't work, loses his voice, Mm -hmm. kind of at the end of his rope. His marriage is ending, his career tanks, he spirals into this deep depression. But now is not the time to feel sorry for Mr. Frank Sinatra. Just two days after his divorce from Nancy is finalized, he marries Ava. Two days? Just two days. That is not a respectful waiting period. Well, their divorce takes like a year. Okay. Right? Still. He's got a lot of assets. Nancy wants a bunch of him. Sure. She's got three of his kids. She's She deserves <laughs> a bunch of them. All of them, in fact. Yeah. He should have no assets after that. <laughs> Zero. But just as he gets together with Ava, her career as literally like the Hollywood bombshell. She's one of the original bombshells. Mm-hmm. She's not like the 20s, 30s bombshell in the silent films. She's like golden age of Hollywood. Bombshell. Bombshell. Mm-hmm. Ava Gardner, Marilyn Monroe, brunette, blonde, Sophia Loren. It's like that period. Got it. Her career starts to take off. She is one of the most sought-after actresses. Meanwhile, Franks is absolutely bottoming out. He's a has-been at this point. And so you know what that means. Insecure husband alert. Uh. And shit gets wild real fucking quick. Frank, having just been divorced and having no career... Is broke as hell. Yes, yes. Ava is supporting both of them. Okay. Her career is on the upswing. She's young and beautiful. He's an aging divorcee with three young children and no career. <laughs> feeling, I can imagine feeling pretty insecure in his position. It is a volatile relationship from the beginning. Later in life, Frank would refer to Ava. They stay close their entire life. Spoiler alert, they get divorced. We'll get to that. <laughs> but she is like the ultimate love of his life. He has many high profile relationships. And despite all the others, this chaotic, disastrous from the start yes. relationship is the one that meant the most to him. Not the one he can hang on to, but Mm-mm. the one that's most important to him. Right. Of this time, Gardner is later quoted in a Vanity Fair article saying, quote, Frank was flat broke when we tied the knot. I don't know where those stories came from that the mafia was taking care of him. They should have been, but the family was nowhere. So, I mean, come on. They're calling in the family. Yes. Obviously. Right? Yes. Right? Very clearly. Like, she knows that the mob should be taking <laughs> care of him and yes. they just abandoned him. the shit him. he's doing with the mob, but she's pissed because they weren't. Because right. they should have been. They should have been. Because he's been working for them. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Anyway, throughout their marriage, Frank is doing some crazy emotional, psychological manipulation with Ava. Three times, he... Uh, tries to make it appear that he is trying to die by suicide two of them are basically for show so at one point he he like shoves ava out of the room and then she hears two gunshots and thinks he's killed himself wait two gunshots yes okay so let's be clear so okay you know what this might not have been the most logical relationship (laughs) all right so she hears two gunshots killed himself with the first one and then the second one for good measure for good measure (laughs) He's laying on the bed when she finally busts down the door. So she really thinks he's done it. They make eye contact. He sits up. <laughs> he just... 
And she realizes he's just shot two rounds into a mattress. Yeah. (laughs) But then she can't leave him because now she thinks he's going to kill himself if she tries to leave. Now he's just a guy shooting guns into a mattress in the bedroom. You don't want to leave him like that. No. Mm -hmm. So that is death by suicide. As a threat. As a threat number one. Um... The second one, it's a little bit controversial. Like, did he really or did he really not? The third one, it seems like he was, like, really trying to die by suicide and his friend found him just in time. Like, he was trying to gas himself in a garage, essentially, but with an oven, Sylvia Plath style. Got it. All of that is to say that the marriage was so unstable and volatile that Ava had two abortions because, one, she thought it was too dangerous to bring a child into their life and two she wasn't sure that she was ready to be tied to frank forever yeah uh i can understand why after the second abortion ava was like you know maybe this is something i should examine a bit (laughs) yeah maybe this is telling me something and after seven years of marriage she leaves him she literally packs her bags Gets on a plane. And she's, like, world famous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She's so famous that she's actually been uh, having an affair with the number one matador in Spain for many months. <laughs> Got it. So have, she boards as, a plane. As one does. Mm-hmm. That's my backup plan. Yeah, exactly. Just, just in case you're wondering. <laughs> Good to Elliot, know. Uh, my backup plan is uh, the matador. Spanish matador. Yeah. The the number one in the world, though. I will not settle <laughs> for number two. It has to be the, the huh? premier matador. I would expect no less. Anyway, so she leaves him for this guy. As a parting gift, she sort of arranges with the studio to get him to read for a role that would revive his career. So she's like, fuck you, I'm out, but... Here's your lifeline. Here's your lifeline. She did not do this alone, though, because she also had connections to the family. And even with her endorsement to the head of Columbia Studios... Harry Cohn, who at the time was, like, the head of the whole situation, was adamant that, like, Sinatra would not get cast in this role. He was like, no, Ava, I know you are, like, our number one star. You're making millions off of us. You are the only reason the studio is making money. But Frank seems kind of unstable, and I don't think this will work out. And it turns out it didn't just seem unstable. Mm -hmm. Was unstable. The thing that persuaded columbia studios was a phone call from johnny roselli who is the head of a crime family who the roselli crime family the roselli crime family who persuades columbia pictures that is in their best interest to hire frank for this role and this alleged episode was literally the inspiration for mario puzzo in his novel, or Puzo, in his novel, The Godfather. Wait, so The Godfather is based off of... Yes. The mob getting Frank Sinatra his film role. Mm-hmm. His so, first breakout film. Yes, it's the inspiration for the scene, I've never seen The Godfather, so help me out here, in which the studio head, Jack Waltz, is mm-hmm. terrorized into casting Johnny Fontaine in his movie. Yes, yes. So Sinatra fucking hates this. He was like, how dare you? I could have done this on my own. How dare you show what happened on this movie? (laughs) He later lobbies for the role of the Godfather that Marlon Brando gets. No way. Yes. He lobbies to have this role in the film. Yeah, decades later. Yeah, Two decades later. 
And we all know that the Marlon Brando, Frank Sinatra feud started back in the early 50s, Guys and Dolls, Nine yeah. Cheesecake Pieces. If you pieces. go back and listen to these episodes, <laughs> yes, you will know this too. So the fact that ultimately the story about how Frank Sinatra like basically like saved his career using the mob mm-hmm. and how the story of that, the role in that movie that went on to be a classic went to Brando instead of Sinatra is just like salt in the wound. After Brando terrorized Sinatra for years. Oh my God. That's that. Brando's a dick bag, <laughs> but, it, but it makes me so happy for him in that moment. I know. I know. It's just full circle. It's, it's a very small world in Hollywood at this point. Yeah, apparently so. Mm-hmm. So it's 1953. Let's place ourselves in the timeline. He's almost 40. He gets this role that Ava helps him get, the mob helps him get. It turns his entire life around. It's a movie called From Here to Eternity. He wins an Oscar for it. He is suddenly back in demand. His voice, fantastic. His acting career, taking off. And to avoid the depression that he was experiencing up to this point, he throws himself into work, almost maniacally. He is described as working, like, maniacally during the 50s. He's also still chilling with the mob. Yeah, that's what he wants to do. Of this time, J. Edgar Hoover, another great Meet Your Heroes episode. Actually, one of my favorites. I learned probably the most during that episode. Go back and listen to that. He said that Frank Sinatra had, quote, a hoodlum complex. (laughs) And they couldn't really pin any mob or mafia activity on him but Hoover was convinced that Sinatra quote relished the dark glamour of associating with gangsters and criminals yes here's the thing he's a fucking singer who has a lot of mobster friends and that pisses people off I mean sorry piss off Hoover for sure like that part isn't the crime it's not the crime here's the thing though it's a little bit more complicated than that so The reality is likely that Sinatra was just bought and paid for, right? He relished in the glamour of being associated with with these folks, but the reality is he just owed them a a shit ton for his career. Sure. So They made this call to get him the movie film, or sorry, the movie role at the very least. At the very least. The other thing that they did during the 50s is that they were investing their fortunes in building up this little known city i mean it's like barely a speck on the map at this point in the middle of the desert in the middle of the desert called las vegas so the mafia is investing a ton of money in building these casinos where it is legal to build casinos basically just constructing an entire city out of nothing out of nothing literally in the middle of the desert because they could and what they needed at the time was a mainstream act who was willing to come to the middle of the desert, live in one of their luxury hotels for months at a time, and perform non-controversially. How do you make this basically scam built in the middle of nowhere seem legitimate? Mm -hmm. You need some sort of talent to make people feel like it's okay. Yep. You put together a rat pack, you create the glamour of the lounge singer, and you invite Frank Sinatra to come make good on what he owes you. And there's this article called The Dark Side of Frank Sinatra by Owen Wilson. 
I don't think it's that Owen Wilson. Doesn't but it seem is, like it would be that Owen Wilson. It is yeah, and Owen Wilson, in which he says, "quote Sinatra dressed like a gangster, talked like a gangster, behaved like a gangster, grew up around gangsters, and fraternized with gangsters." Perhaps the greatest irony is that he was never actually a made man. His relationship with the mob was clearly beneficial to both sides. Sinatra got fame and fortune, and the mob had a tame star who could be used to boost their coffers and shore up their investments when necessary. If Sinatra was instrumental in establishing Las Vegas, Las Vegas was equally important in, the, in his 1950s comeback. While the singer was clearly starstruck by the mob, it's unclear whether the mob was similarly dazzled or simply saw Sinatra as expedient as long as he behaved. I mean, if you get to the core of it, it seems like there's this unspoken code with anybody who's in the mafia, which mm-hmm. is like, you are important as long as you are useful. Mm-hmm. And so, say what you will, it doesn't seem that far off from any relationship that's fundamentally oriented around both loyalty and usefulness. His usefulness continued. Throughout the 50s and 60s, he's making music, he's making movies, he sort of gets into this niche character of being a detective in movies. A detective? Yeah, ironically, he's like the... The lawman? The lawman. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Right. But he, you know, he's still a character. He's still well-known. And in 1964, he meets Mia Farrow. He's 49. She's 19. 19? Mm-hmm. A year later, they get married. 30 years older. Mm-hmm. He's 50, soon to be 51. It's like that weird period between, you know, like her birthday and his. So she's 21, he's 50, but... Sure. 30, 30 years. Year. Yeah. And apparently Dean Martin, you know, Rat Pack Dean Martin yes. at the time said to him, Frank, I've got bottles of scotch older than that kid you're marrying. Oh, shit. <laughs> I like that. And she was actually younger than Frank's youngest daughter from his first marriage. Oh, God. Wait, Frank's youngest daughter? Mm-hmm. She's younger than his youngest daughter? Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. So anyway, they get married. Yep. They basically tell no one, just a few friends, including, like, one guest that they're married had actually, the day before, attempted to murder his wife. Wait, what? There's, like, this whole big story where, you know, they're cutting the cake and, you know, there's only like 25 people at this wedding at most. There's just not a lot of people because it's kind of scandalous. They're trying to keep it on the deal. Not a big to do. Yeah. And Frank points to one of the, the people at the wedding and says to Mia, like, hey, that guy shot his wife yesterday. And Mia was like, what the fuck? My mom's not even here. Why is this guy here? <laughs> this guy who killed his wife. Yeah. And Frank was like, oh, his wife's in the hospital, but she didn't die. Oh, tried to kill his wife. Tried so. to kill his wife. And, you know, they'll be able to make it seem like it was an accident. Lo and behold, a few months later, accidentally shot his wife. Blah, blah, blah. Whole and killed thing. her. No. She's, she survived. But it was made to seem like it was an accident. Got it, got it, got it. Right from the jump, this marriage is off to a rocky start. No. Which seems like might be a pattern at this point. <laughs> You're saying a marriage to Frank Sinatra didn't go well Mm-mm. from the beginning? Almost immediately, he insists that Mia give up her career. She is this rising star. Yeah, she's doing well. Her parents are stars. 
like they're famous. She's in the business from the beginning. But yeah, from 19, they meet on the set of one of her shows. And he's acting too, I imagine. He's acting. Her star is rising. And he was like, you need to be a housewife. You've now married Frank Sinatra. You don't need to work. And she was like, no, I never needed to work. My parents are rich. I am wealthy. I like like doing this. I'm doing this because it is meaningful to me. And I'm good at it. And I'm just getting started. So no, I will not give up my career. She's also described early in their marriage as being moody, complicated, and, quote, not at all intimidated by him. Sounds like my type. I know. You would love me. You should (laughs) see her. Again, smoke show. It turns out if you're rich and famous and really good at what you do, you can get really hot women to fall in love with you. Wait, what? Why did nobody tell me this sooner? 30 years older than them. (laughs) Okay, okay. Uh, and you have stepchildren older than you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, Frank does not like this because he has built a career in many relationships on his ability to intimidate others. Mm, yes. But I really feel like he should have known what was coming because while they were dating, he repeatedly told her one of the reasons he fell in love with her was because of her hair. It was long, blonde, like the middle of her back. She was, you know young. It was just like a thing he liked. Anyway, so he invites her to a party. It's his 50th birthday, right when they're dating, beginning of their dating. And his ex-wife and children are throwing it. He invites (laughs) her. He was like, go buy whatever you want. She goes out and buys a party dress. She gets her hair and makeup done. She's feeling herself. Mm -hmm. She comes downstairs to get into the car to leave. And he was like, you know what? It's not going to work out. My kids don't want you there. You can't come. What? And she was like, um, okay, that's a bummer. The next day, she doesn't show up for work. Her boss has to call her. She ends up showing up like three hours late. She gets on set. He starts screaming at her. He was like, how she cut dare her hair? you? She cut her hair to like a quarter of an inch. She basically buzz cutted her own hair <laughs> with scissors. Oh, shit. <sighs> she was so tired of these old men telling her what to do that she was like, fuck you. She brings out the pile of hair, hands it to the director, and she was like, I'm done with this childish shit, basically. Got to respect it. Got to respect it. So he knows what he's getting into. She was like, don't fuck with me. I will destroy everything you love about me. (laughs) (laughs) To make a point. To make a point. Shortly after that, they get married. He marries her after that. Again, knew what he was getting into. Yeah, absolutely. Moody, complicated. Yes. Good for her. Don't let this old man push you around just because you love him. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever. After they get married, Frank has the audacity to make Mia go hang out with his ex-wife, Ava. In Paris. How do you just be like, oh, go hang out with my ex? They show up. Ava's like, hey, Francis, is what she calls Frank. Please go walk my dogs. And he was like, oh, I feel uncomfortable about this. Here's my young child bride. Um, (laughs) I don't want that to happen. But but Ava was like, it's going to be fine. Just go. Please walk my dogs. Let, let, Let me and I get to know each other. Frank walks back in. And immediately Ava was like, Francis, now why didn't you tell this child 
that you called me on your wedding day. What? And Frank was like, um, did I call you? Did I don't remember happen? calling That's you. That's real fuzzy. Yeah. And Ava was like, oh, yes, remember? You said, quote, tomorrow, when you read about this wedding in the papers, know that no matter how I feel about this girl, I will always have a place in my heart for you. Then she turns to Mia and she says, That's so sweet of him, wasn't it, dear? Man, she's just stone fucking cold. Stone fucking cold. And Mia was like, Yo, Frank, what the fuck? You wouldn't even let me (laughs) tell my mom we got married, but you called your ex-wife? Look, it's a complicated situation, all right? Just... Okay. So as you might have guessed, this marriage does not last long. No. Within two years, Frank has divorce papers served to Mia on set in front of everyone while she's filming Rosemary's Baby, which is like her big breakout Hollywood movie. Goddamn, just on the set. Right. She had already shot two-thirds of the movie, and Frank was like, I'm insisting one more time that you give up your career and come be with me. Two-thirds of the way through this film, that's going to be her breakout role. Right. She said, go fuck yourself, and he divorced her. Their relationship remained complicated throughout the rest of his life. Don't say. Mm-hmm. Mia refers to Frank as the love of her life. And it's well documented that for decades, basically until he died, they maintained a both platonic and off and on again romantic relationship. At some point, Mia Farrow is in a relationship with Woody Allen. Mia finds out that Woody is having a consensual sexual relationship with her adopted daughter. With her adopted daughter. Yes, Soon Yi. And when she finds this out, when Mia finds this out, one of the first people she calls is Frank. And Frank was like, okay, I'm going to deal with this. Let me deal with this the way I deal with it. Wait, let me let me deal with this? Mm-hmm. And Mia was like, I don't really know what that means, but I later she got a phone call from a person who was like, meet me on the corner of this street and this street in New York. I'll be in a gray sedan. And Mia was like, I didn't even know what a sedan was. I had to look up what the sedan meant. <laughs> but she shows up on this corner at this time. She gets in the back seat. The The driver never turns around and basically says, so tell me what the problem is. Mia like spills her guts about what has happened between her current partner, her partner with whom my she's had multiple children. My partner is fucking my kid, yes. My partner is having sex with my adopted daughter. Come to find out. Frank, obviously, had sent this person to get the story from Mia firsthand so that they could arrange to have Woody Allen's legs broken. <laughs> oh, shit. By the mafia. By, by the family. By the family. This comes out much later in a court case for custody of the children. But basically what you're saying is even after Woody Allen... Sorry. Even after Mia Farrow and Frank Sinatra have long since parted ways, mm-hmm. somebody fucks with Mia... Frank is sending people out to break their legs. Right. Mia stops it, of course. She says, don't do that. There's still rumors that Ronan Farrow is Frank Sinatra's son. When, when asked directly about this, Mia Farrow says, possibly. Yeah. I, I have heard that people have at times denied it. On the other hand, the evidence is... If you look at a picture of Frank Sinatra and you look at a picture of Ronan Farrow, they are the same person. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll tell you what. Ronan Farrow does not look like Woody Allen. <laughs> That's absolutely true. Who would ostensibly be his father otherwise. 
Yeah. Back to Frank. After his divorce from Mia in the 60s, he continues working. In-demand, detective guy, whatever. 1976, he marries his first, his first, no, his fourth wife. Fourth wife, okay, yeah. Barbara. Their relationship started, as you would imagine, as an affair. She was living next door to him with her husband. She later wrote about him at the beginning of the relationship and then well into their marriage as being this Jekyll and Hyde husband who even at this point in his 60s demanded that she party with him and his friends every night. He would flip on a dime. He was like emotionally and mentally abusive and threatened physical violence many times during fights. In her own memoir, Barbara wrote, quote, Before appearing on stage, he'd shouted everyone behind the scenes, especially his son, Frank Jr., who worked as his conductor for years. He once raised his hands during a fight and said, God, I want to punch you. It was his way of getting up steam. But it wasn't pretty to be around. Restless and impatient, Frank wanted laughs and entertainment the rest of the time. He was never more keyed up than in the hours following a performance when he needed to burn off some of his incredible energy. Sometimes that manifested itself in a tantrum, but more often than not, he just wanted to drink with his buddies and me and expected us to stay up all night. A friend of Frank's once said one of the qualities that most endeared me to him was my stamina. In interviews and other bits of her memoir, she shared anecdotes about like how aggressive and angered he was over minor inconveniences. For example, one time they were at a restaurant and his pasta was not the right texture. And so instead of sending it back, being like, hey, could you cook this for, you know, 30 to 60 seconds less, he threw the plate against the wall and then used his finger to write in the red sauce, Picasso. Uh, what? And then they just stormed out. Didn't pay nothing. Apparently the shop owner then like framed it on the wall. It was like, hey, Frank Sinatra did his bullshit to my wall. <laughs> but it could have been avoided. Seems like he was not always the easiest to be around, yes. No. And their relationship, their first interaction, Barbara and Frank's, started when he did not like the way that she was timekeeping a game of charades. And so he threw the clock against the wall. The fuck? Right. It's just like these very minor things. Minor, but consistently unreasonable and potentially violent. Indeed. And this is not just in his personal life. It's in other aspects. Like work world and everything. Right. So he spent the last two decades of his life performing here and there, but also getting heavily into politics. So he had always been involved in politics. Like his mom was the Democratic ward of whatever, blah, blah, blah. So it was like something he was interested in. Yeah. His closest political relationship was actually with JFK. Okay. So, as you can imagine, they would party and womanize together during the 50s and 60s. Yeah. JFK. Mm-hmm. Big on the womanizing. Indeed. And in 1962, so going back a few years before Barbara, but 1962, he was supposed to, JFK was supposed to visit Sinatra at his home in Palm Springs. Was JFK president at the time, I think, 62? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Yep. He's president until 63. Got it. And then... Yeah. Anyway, so Sinatra has his helipad built. He renovates parts of his house. And right before JFK is supposed to come to Sinatra's house, 
J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI was like, yo, you cannot go to his house. It's the mafia. And so what happens is JFK just cuts him off, like ghosts him as a friend. Well, he ghosts. He's done. Frank Sinatra. Done so. Doesn't show up, goes and stays at another guy's house instead. But Sinatra built a fucking helipad already. I know. And so what Sinatra does is the very reasonable thing of taking a sledgehammer and destroying the entire fucking helipad himself. Whoa, whoa, whoa. He built the helipad. JFK ghosts him. And then he goes out and destroys the helipad by hand by with a sledgehammer. Hand. That is not a healthy response, sir. Mm-mm. And the other thing he does at this moment is basically over the next few years very rapidly goes from being a lifelong democrat to very quickly becoming a republican he abandons the whole political party because jfk hurt his feelings yeah he does that he does not take well to being slighted (laughs) apparently not by the 80s he's pretty well established as republican Okay, everybody's political party. Twenty years in, do what you're doing. Twenty years into his platform of don't get, don't get slighted by a Democrat. Yes, <laughs> right. So at this point, he endorses Reagan for both his like governor bids in California, oh, and then also course. his presidential campaigns. Sinatra is actually in charge of arranging Reagan's presidential gala in 1980. Wow, and eventually donates four million dollars to his campaign. Oh, he's election. like all in. He's in in. In it to win it. I didn't even know you could donate $4 million to presidential yeah, I campaigns. I feel like it's not legal. <laughs> I guess, yeah, depending on the f- particular fund, sure. Like, there, yeah, there's, I'm sure, loopholes and all this other stuff, but sure. It should be noted, and I just want to give him credit for this, because we've been shit-talking a lot of the things he did. One of, one of the things that Sinatra did that was a net positive was throughout the 60s, when it was incredibly difficult and not... Um, necessarily beneficial for someone to do this. He was an outspoken proponent of equal rights and civil rights. So he, while Las Vegas is being built, he actually would boycott casinos that would not allow black performers to perform. So he did take a stance and say like, hey, there are very specific causes that are important to me and this is about justice and, and equality and, you know, Sammy Davis Jr. is part of the Rat Pack. Part of the Rat Pack. Originally and forever. It is noted, however, that despite that being the case, Sinatra... That did not stop Sinatra from making a whole bunch of racist remarks about Sammy Davis Jr. on stage in front of Sammy Davis Jr. Okay, okay. But from a sort of political influence standpoint, he did what he... What most people would be unwilling to do because he had the political leverage. He was pushing for integration at a time when it was unpopular. Yes. To less of his credit, all of that changed in the 1970s when he stopped supporting Democratic platforms. Wait, wait, wait. He didn't just leave the Democratic Party. He was like, he left integration behind as well? Yeah. So his political activism on behalf of both black and Jewish people, which had been pretty central to his his political uh, and progressive for the time yeah stopped during the (sighs) 70s and it never really like picked back up again so draw whatever conclusion you want from that could be coincidental seems like a lot of biographers multiple of them didn't think so yeah turns out yeah if you just 
have your feelings hurt, you're willing to leave the black people and Jewish people behind in your push for equality. Mm-hmm. Gets dicey. His health declines throughout the 80s and 90s. At this point, he's in his 70s and 80s. And in 1998, he died of a heart attack. One of his many heart attacks, in fact. <laughs> well, no. In fact, it was his last heart attack. It was his last heart attack. <laughs> and during this final heart attack, apparently one of the things that his his wife, Barbara, who he remained married to for these decades After at this all point. the child bride. Oh, no, no, no. That was Mia. This is Barbara. Fourth wife. Oh, that's right. She was not quite as young. That's right. No. She was not quite as young. She was the ne- girl next door. The last thing she said to him was, Frank, come on, you have to fight. And his last known words are, quote, I'm losing. And then he dies. Oh, I thought it was going to be I did it my way, but not that would have been so much better. It would have been poetic. Yeah. I, I feel like maybe poetry is not uh, Actually, top his of mind said, when yeah. you're literally dying. Good point. Good point. So for all of the ways that he manipulated and controlled women, all of the philandering and pain that caused his wife and children his ostensible connection to organized crime the punching of journalists yeah the violent and aggressive outbursts with other performers and the giving of millions of dollars to ronald reagan who again everybody should go listen to that episode episode 13 for all of those reasons frank sinatra is not my hero Although you do have to hand it to him, can rock a fedora. Oh, yeah, he can rock a fedora. He's got so many songs. Oh, 1,500. That's that's just a stupid amount of songs. Right. And recently, didn't Trump play My Way at a rally? Oh, yeah. Wasn't that like a big that's headline like a recently? Yes. And how his daughter, like Mia Farrow, was like, oh, fuck you. Frank would have hated Trump. Yeah, like, and then and then one of Frank Sinatra's daughters actually didn't actually came out and said Mia is not just right that Frank would have hated Trump. In his later years, Frank Sinatra said, "I hate Donald Trump the person" because he they overlapped, and he was like, "This guy's an idiot." Yeah, it's so funny to me though because they're both sort of like pawns of organized crime. Organized crime. Yeah, they're yeah. Bo- <laughs> yes, yes. One of them is more talented than the other, but yeah. they both have this like deep indebtedness to mafia families. Mm-hmm. One Italian, one Russian, but still, mm. uh, yeah. It's an interesting. It's an interesting overlap at this moment parallel. in time. Both both supported Democrats until it was no longer convenient personally, there and abandoned them for Republican Party. Yeah, it's um. Turns out that Frank was not alone in some of his lesser great qualities. If people are alone as they're listening to this podcast, where can they find more episodes? Mm, alone in your heart, <laughs> alone in person. We have 48 hours worth of episodes. In fact, we just got our Spotify wrapped. Oh. Our Spotify wrapped. (laughs) And it's not quite 48 hours, but in 2020, do you know how many minutes of podcast we shared? More than 14. Almost 2,000. What? 
Could you have, if someone said to me at the beginning of this year, like, how many minutes do you think you'll talk this year? I probably would have said, like, 300 max. Yeah. What's but a couple hours? On tape, 2,000. Like, verifiable. Mm-hmm. There's proof. And we were legitimately in people's Spotify wrapped, as in, like, their top listen to podcast. Yes. Or their second... Bless y'all, y'all for sharing. Higher standards. <laughs> <laughs> Moment of sincerity. You start this, you don't know if anybody's going to listen. We're like here mm-hmm. bullshitting and telling stories. And then to have somebody be like, oh, this is not just a podcast I listen to. It is the podcast I listen to the most. It feels real good. Appreciate that. It does. Glad, thank you. Thank you. I'm glad y'all are out there. We're glad we're here for you. Yeah. Send us your address. We have so many stickers still. Stickers, magnets. We would love to give you swag to give to friends. Um, that's kind of how this works. You yeah. just tell people about us and then more you, people listen. You share the Meet Your Heroes gospel. We'll be right behind you. Indeed. And if you want that Meet Your Heroes gospel, you can find it on social media, Twitter, Instagram, at Your Heroes Pod. Or meetyourheroespodcast.com. Mm-hmm. Or you can email us at yourheroespod at gmail.com. And we'll respond. We have very few other things to do. Yeah. What else is going on, really? Right. We're not raising a child in a pandemic or working high-stress jobs. I'll tell you what, though. This is the least high-stress email that I have to respond to. Of all the emails you have, yes. Mm -hmm. But until next week. Don't be a hero. Don't be a hero. Bye. Bye.